0: A real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast
1: with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. Um, my guest today is uh, Francis J. Beckwith. He's a philosopher and a professor of philosophy. Uh, he teaches and writes in the area of law, politics, ethics, and religion. Uh, he teaches at Baylor University. Uh, he teaches a law and religion class there, philosophy and constitutional issues, philosophy of law, contemporary moral problems. Uh, he's the author of over 100 academic articles, uh, book chapters, reference entries, and reviews. Some of his books are Politics for Christians, which perhaps perhaps will speak about today. Uh, Never Doubt Thomas, the Catholic Aquinas as Evangelical and Protestant. Uh defending life, a moral and legal case against abortion uh et cetera et cetera many uh, I think I believe over twenty books so a very very prolific career uh Francis, welcome, and thanks for coming
2: well, thanks for having me yeah
1: uh if if you would tell me a bit about um you know your background uh, perhaps uh how you came to faith if you're comfortable talking about that and um why you focus on the areas you do today
2: yeah so i I grew up in in Las Vegas, Nevada. Uh, I was born in Brooklyn, New York. My parents moved to Vegas in the mid-1960s. And I grew up in a Catholic home, and when I was in elementary school, I was one of these kids that really liked to ask questions about what we would call issues in faith and reason. And so I found myself you know, always asking questions to my teachers. I, I apparently had a philosophical bent when I was quite young. Uh, ultimately, I drifted away from the Catholic Church and spent uh, most of my well, let's see, most of my life up until 16 years ago. I considered myself a evangelical Protestant, and then returned to the Catholic Church in 2007. the The issues I, I you know, the things that really initially interested me in philosophy were this sort of the kind of common faith and reason questions, like is it reasonable to believe in God? Is it Reasonable to believe in miracles, uh, things of that sort. Sort of, kind of conventional faith and reason questions. In fact, I did my doctoral dissertation at Fordham University on David Hume's argument against miracles. I so I always I always had an interest in sort of issues that kind of uh, intersected between science and religion, um, questions like that. And then uh, after. Graduate school, I was hired at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. I got to teach for about seven years where I grew up, and the chair of the department asked if I'd be willing to teach courses in moral and political philosophy. and I you know, I had an interest in that, but it wasn't really something that was central. But then I began teaching in that area, and eventually my scholarship kind of drifted uh, into into that into those areas as well and eventually i i went on to law school at at washington university at the end of the 90s the beginning 2000s and in 2003 i was hired by baylor university and have Mm. been here ever since so i've i think i'm not as interested in those sort of faith and reason questions in the conventional sense but i i think it's i've drifted more to asking those questions within the context of law and politics
1: so what, what what's an example? What is like one of the thorniest and most interesting questions that you've been wrestling with recently?
2: Yeah. So one issue that I mean interests me because I think it it kind of reflects my own internal struggle. I I tend to uh, at least in terms of my own kind of political philosophy, I tend to be a kind of conventional liberal in the sense that I I believe in liberal democracy. I think that. Uh, consent of the governed, uh, having a constitution that's ratified by the people, uh, representative democracy that protects fundamental rights—all that I, I sort of believe. All those things. I, I and I also believe that that it's a bad idea to have a kind of unification of church and state. So I, I sort of, in that sense, I'm a kind of conventional liberal. On the other hand, though, I also think that religious citizens should you know should not be prohibited from making the best arguments they can for their views in the public square and i know there are a lot of people who think that the second view that i hold sort of implies that i should re- reject the first one <laughs> but i don't th- i think there is a consistency between them i uh, but it's something that i i kind of wrestle with because i do think that something like religious liberty is a fundamental right that should be protected by the government. On the other hand, I also hold to the view that uh, citizens should not be marginalized because of the views they hold. Uh, So it's a, you know, so I do think, in this sense, I find myself kind of an orphan politically. (laughs) I find, you know, so I'm not, uh, I, I don't agree with certain authors that defend what is sometimes called integralism, the kind of view that, uh, at least in Catholic circles, that uh, we should strive to have a kind of state that has an, a, a relationship to the church in a way in which the church has authority over certain aspects of, of, of government activity. I, I reject that view. I'm
1: At the same time, it seems like in, I guess in the West, I'll call it, um, you know, views from religious people, whatever they may be, uh, seem to be laughed at, shouted down, ignored, called crazy, et cetera, like, you know, demonized and, um, you know, epithets thrown on it and just really not considered. So I don't know. Is there a balance there or like what do you...
2: Yeah. So, so yeah. So I think that, you know, when we, when we have to, when those sorts of things are, are brought up, I mean, I think a lot of times when people sort of have that hostility, I'm not sure... That they're as acquainted with the intellectual credentials of religion. That is, a lot of it has to do with just a not having read enough. <laughs> you know, you know. So I, I published a book eight years ago that actually deals somewhat with the couple of chapters deal with the, the this question of uh, the title of the book is taking rights seriously R I T E S and it's it's about. The relationship between faith, reason, and politics. And so one, one of the chapters I go through how certain legal scholars uh, will depict religious beliefs. And they are so foreign from the way in which at least most religious believers understand their own beliefs. So to give you an example, there's a, a writer, legal scholar named Brian Leiter, who's University of Chicago, a very distinguished legal scholar, published a book about 10 years ago called Why Tolerate Religion? And so one of, the, one of the points he makes in the book, or one of the points that he argues for, is that religious beliefs are insulated from the evidence. That is, when somebody holds to a religious belief, they sort of come up with ways to deal with anomalies. And at the end of the day, religious beliefs are not falsifiable, to sort of use an old way of, of talking about this.
1: Before we continue, The ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now, back to the show. Even to say like the evidence suggests that there's this body of pristine stuff called evidence that is the standard by which everything should be judged and Religions apart from that, they don't. They they yeah. have no evidence, et cetera, It seems like,
2: yeah. And so, I mean, it's interesting that so so one of the points he makes in the book, he talks about he, he quotes from an uh, another legal scholar whose name escapes me, who refers to the sort of insulation of the evidence as as faith. And so the one of the first things that I bring up in, in the book chapter is well, there's a whole you know long intellectual tradition. Uh, at least within Christianity and Judaism, and to a certain extent Islam, dealing with well, what does it mean to have faith? And he doesn't uh, he doesn't seem acquainted with that. <laughs> and so, uh, so, and you mentioned the issue of evidence. I mean, what acts, ex- what counts as evidence, right? So, is it uh, you know we think of evidence as something we point to to prove something, but you know most of us believe lots of things based on authority or, I mean, I couldn't tell you, for example, I mean, I believe in the, the heliocentric view of the solar system, but I couldn't really prove it to you. <laughs> I, mean, I, I would probably just appeal to the fact that I have astronomer friends that I trust, mm, right. right? So, and I think that, I think most of our beliefs are like that. I think if we really thought about it, I mean, even think of my own writings. I mean, I, I cite other people. Right. I cite other people who I think are authorities, people that, you know, say they have the data or the evidence. But I've never actually, let's say, examined firsthand ancient documents. Right. I read books about people who say that they've seen them. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, so I think there's a lot more going on when we talk about evidence um, uh, than just sort of the kind of courtroom view of evidence. But yeah, so I I do think one of the problems is just the authors that write in these areas that are kind of dismisses of religion. I my my experience has been is they just haven't read the literature that's out there, and I think it's you know I, I think it has a lot to do with you know just our plausibility structures. So think about you know I can again I'll use myself as an example. When I returned to the Catholic Church 16 years ago, the the, the most frequent question. I received through email from strangers was, well, why don't you consider Eastern Orthodoxy? Hmm. And I just thought, I just never occurred to me, <laughs> you know, because uh, I'd grown up Catholic. I was baptized Catholic. My parents had brought me up in the church. As a Protestant, I felt I was in schism with Rome. It never occurred to me. Now, did I not do my intellectual due, due diligence in, in not examining Eastern Orthodoxy more carefully? I don't know. You know, so, so I th- I think in here, and I'll, I'll, this is in fairness to my friends that are highly critical of religion, I just think a lot of times it's the lack of examination is just because they just don't think it's initially plausible to begin with.
1: If one is going to criticize something or someone or some thought process, you know, like uh, you should at least invest some time in it, to yeah. see if your criticisms are valid or you're not just listening to the, you know, the the dogma that's around or, you know, yeah, they, know some a, mysterious person telling you that this is what you should believe
2: yeah there's a kind of uh kind of an echo chamber uh I think this is something probably more severe than it than it was twenty or thirty years ago. We just don't read it. oftentimes people that we disagree with. I mean the way in which social media is constructed now uh, you know you get these messages like you'd be interested in this or that right because they figure out the sites that I frequently go to right and 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 that sort of insulates me uh you know, from you have to sort of make an effort now to actually seek out, uh, you know, especially again on social media. You're, you're right about scholars, scholars who do write about uh, who are critical of points of view. They they should obviously read those those mm, right. those points of. View.
1: So um, I don't know when your friend or whoever it was said to you, "Why are you a certain kind of uh, of Christian or a certain kind of Catholic?" I don't know how to put it best. Uh, yeah. What was your answer after you reflected on it? Or did yes. you or did you just say well, I don't know I'm busy
2: yeah no well, no you know no, it had to do with the fact that uh I grew up uh in a Catholic family, my parents had baptized me, and so to me it was when I when I left the church as a youngster i in a sense I was in schism with that church I wasn't in schism with Eastern Orthodoxy now of course the Eastern Orthodox person would say, well no, you, you know we've got it right and you should have uh you know taking the time but it just never it never seemed to be a live option mm. so i i think i think th- there's a great little um essay uh by William James the great uh american philosopher who was at harvard for mo- for i think virtually all his career it's called the will to believe and and one of the things that james says in it is that we sometimes the reason why certain ideas don't occur to us as possible avenues of belief is that we just don't think they're live options. And so how a view becomes plausible to people is that it, it kind of becomes a live option. Uh, the other thing is that we sometimes, this is another insight that James had that was really interesting, is that sometimes we're more afraid of error than we are loving the truth. And so for him, he, 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 that's why he calls the article the will to believe, that at some, at some point, you just, you have to sort of take a stand. <laughs> you have to, you, you, you know, there's a point at which you just can't wait for all the evidence to come in. You have to act. And James was one of many early 20th century, late 19th century philosophers who were called pragmatists, right? And that's why they were called that, right? They were, it was very much the emphasis was on sort of pragmatic uh, action.
1: OK, I, I don't know. It just seems like people's inclination would be, uh, you know, they want a shorthand. They want a shortcut. They don't want to sit there and think deeply about everything or they can't. So they don't have time with competing things in their life. So I don't know how to, how Does anyone make progress on people just saying ah, religion? There's no evidence for it. They're crazy. Goodbye.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, I think I think you have to take seriously religious beliefs that have had a, a deep influence on the formation of culture. So think, for example, the ways in which so many of our sort of contemporary sentiments about mercy and forgiveness, even our sort of more liberal inclinations about tolerance, I think ultimately have roots in a kind of general biblical worldview. Even if one sort of sort of reject the underlying, you know, fundamental you know beliefs that, in a way. The way in which sort of even people that may not share those religious beliefs approach a civil society, uh, I think there's a there, there's a lot of that influence. So I think you have to uh, take seriously uh, those beliefs that were also held by uh, you know some of the smartest people who have ever lived. So to me, like so so for for something that that I have not really I, I really hadn't read a lot on until maybe. Five, ten years ago, is I've been reading more about Islam and Islamic philosophy. And part of it has to do with my reading of Thomas Aquinas. Aquinas uh, cites and quotes from uh, several Islamic philosophers Averroes, Avicenna, Al Ghazali, in, in addition to uh, the great Jewish philosopher Moses Maimonides. And he, his citations of them. It's not just about a critique. It, in some cases, he agrees with them. And so he took them very seriously. And so I've been reading more of in uh, Islamic philosophy and and actually about uh, seven, eight years ago, published a series of articles, some in academic venues, some in popular venues, uh, addressing the question, do Muslims and Christians worship the same God? And so I I came to the conclusion they do, uh, although I don't think they share the same faith, so I make a distinction between faith and sort of the doctrine of God. Um, so I, I do think that if people are going to be seekers, that they probably should start with those faiths that have had the you know the biggest influence on the history of of civilization, even uh, influencing art, music, literature, law, and even if you find yourself. You know disagreeing with with some of those doctrines i think you have to take take them quite seriously
1: well would you say that uh, both jews and christians and muslims all worship the same god i
2: do <laughs> what i mean by that is that if you think of because obviously they disagree so so let me sort of start with the disagreement so where muslims and christians and jews disagree is is primarily on the doctrine of the trinity christians hold that their god is one substance and three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, Jews and Muslims disagree with that. But they do agree that there is only one uh, being who has underived existence from which all creation has come. And there can only be one kind of being like that. In fact, it's even weird to refer to God as one of a kind. Uh, In classical Christian, Jewish, and Muslim philosophy, God is not one of a kind. He's not like the last saber-toothed tiger. He, yeah. it, it, you know, he's he is uh, the the being from which all kinds derive their existence. And so, if there can only be one sort of being like that uh, by nature, and each of those three faiths accept that, then it has to be the same God. So, I, I give a several different kind of illustrations in, in my writings on this. So one of the things that you, at least in, in sort of contemporary Christian p- apologetics, you have a, a kind of method that they is typically employed. Uh usually the writer begins with arguments for God's existence. So the the method is, okay, we we first show that God exists and then we move on to, you know, show that certain distinct aspects of Christian theology are true. Like the Deity of Christ, the resurrection, and so forth. But if you first establish that there is a God, and that God has that which has underived existence, well, then you're at the same place as Muslims and Jews, right? That's so so the difference, I, I argue, is that Christians hold that there are certain things about God's nature that are revealed in scripture that Jews and Muslims reject. And that has to do with Obviously, the nature of Jesus and that God is triune. And I, I give a couple of another story that I tell in, in two of my book chapters is, is a, a case of three college students who all are in a philosophy class. And I, I give them different, I think I have Ahmed, Benjamin, and Catherine. So Ahmed, Benjamin, and Catherine are all in philosophy class. They all wind up arriving in philosophy class as atheists, but then they they come to the conclusion after reading Maimonides, uh, Avicenna, and Aquinas that there exists one God, creator of all that exists, but none of them belong to any religion. You know, In other words, they're just philosophical belief. But then what happens is they're unsatisfied with that, so they go and examine the different religions, and Ahmed becomes a Christian, Benjamin becomes a Muslim, and Catherine becomes have they changed gods? And my argument is no. What, they, what they've done is they've actually, at least from each of their perspectives, think that they've learned more about the one true God they discovered through philosophy. So that that's that's how I've, I try to come up with ways to explain it. So, I mean, of all the things I've written, I probably have had more, at least online criticism of that than anything else, um, which is really shocking to me. Uh, and mostly from from Christians who, you know, think that I'm totally wrong about about this so yeah so that's the you know that's pretty much the you know a kind of short version of of the case i make okay
1: yeah i know that makes sense i don't know now that you're you're you know you're probably very well versed in uh in christianity but you're also studying islam and you know judaism is definitely a part of christianity it appears what's your perspective now why why do so many people believe in the muslim faith and at the same time there's so many people that believe in the christian faith and at the same time there's so many people that you know Uh, believe in the Jewish faith? Like, why would these things coexist? And I I know it's impossible. Yeah. What are your thoughts?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, I think a lot of times, I mean, this is true of not only our religious beliefs, but most of our beliefs are the result of how we're brought up, right? I mean, I ask my students when I teach political philosophy, why do you think that uh, constitutional democracy is the best form of government? Well, first off, I ask them, what's which is the best form of government? And I say, is monarchy a good form of government? Nobody raises their hand. And I say, and then I get to liberal democracy or constitutional democracy. They go, yes. Then almost all of them raise their hand. And I say, why? And they find it really difficult to defend because that's just – they were just brought up that way. So I think that for – vast majority of people that were brought up Christians, Muslims, and Jews, they believe that because that's the way they were brought up. But that's also, again, that's true of a lot of our other beliefs. But people do convert, right? People do change their minds. And so uh, you find, obviously, people that are converts to any one of those faiths. And within each of them, there are different denominations or different Uh, strands of of them. Uh, I do think that, you know, I think that there are obviously attractive elements to each of those faiths. And I think it's a mistake uh, for people to sort of be dismissive of, you know, I was actually at an event not too long ago, it was a Christian event, and it involved uh, several, uh, there were young people there, mostly college students, and there was a speaker, I was in the audience just observing, one of the students asked the speaker who was talking about Islam, why 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 are why do people convert to islam and i he couldn't give a good answer and one of his answers well a lot of women convert to islam because they're getting married to muslim men and i just thought that was a really bad answer because because i there are i mean look if you're let's say a young person who's grown up in a, let's say a highly secularized society where there's no sort of discussion of let's say ultimate meaning or the transcendent and somebody comes to you and let's say says, look, here's a, a faith that's been around for, you know, 1400 years, uh, all these really smart people believed it. And it, and it, you know, it talks about, you know, that, you know, being, uh, obedient to God, that's, that's really attractive, right? I mean, I think in a sense to a certain extent, we're all looking for some kind of uh, ultimate meaning, you know, uh, or, even if we're not conscious of it, we sort of gravitate oftentimes to movements or causes that are bigger than ourselves and then people. So I I do think that something like Islam can be quite attractive. I thought the answer given by the speaker was was a terrible answer. (laughs) Because I I think I mean, I know people I know people that have converted to Islam. Uh, uh, I do know one who did convert because of his spouse. But that's but I've known people that are intellectual converts, and they are right. serious people. And so I, I think it's a mistake for for people to be um, dismissive. I think I actually enjoy reading biography, people's autobiographies of their conversions. And in the most I've read mostly Catholic ones. I've not read any books of converts uh, to other faiths. But I, I do think we 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 shouldn't underestimate the draw of faiths that actually. Rec- I think that the thing that I think a lot of maybe Westerners uh, are dismissive about is the, especially with more traditional faiths, the the premium put on obedience, and we think, well, that's going to limit my autonomy, and I don't want to do that, and we put such a premium on autonomy, but, you know, as one of my friends said, who was a convert, he said, I've tried my autonomy for 40 years. It's about time someone else has a chance, (laughs) you know? So there's a sense in which people, I mean, are are you know, let we have to be careful, you know, when when we're we're discussing conversions that there's a lot more going on than just uh, it's not entirely sort of rational deliberation, but it's not entirely irrationally.
1: Yeah. Um. What about the uh, different denominations within Christianity? Why do people, uh, you know, why are they a Baptist versus a a Catholic versus a Seventh Day Adventist, etc.? Why do you think that happens?
2: I think it's the same kind of story. I think people will grow up. I mean, obviously the history of Christianity uh, gives us at least an account of why it begins, right? So at least in the West, it really begins uh, in the 16th century with the Protestant Reformation. And there the divisions multiply and the divisions also are deeply connected to culture and government, and so Luther Martin Luther ultimately is successful at least in terms of uh, standing his own ground and uh separating he winds up his his goal of reforming the Catholic Church doesn't quite work right so he's eventually excommunicated but Lutheranism only flourishes uh flourishes because it's protected by the German princes so you have this sort of uh connection between politics religion uh and then those differing views about That eventually develop on how to interpret scripture uh, the role of tradition and you also have this idea at least with the radical reformation of trying to get back to what they think was original christianity and so what happens though is that those different faiths at least initially uh, people that you know they separate as either adults or children from the catholic church but then generations of people you know were born grow up and they just You know, they grow up in those denominations and uh, what they learn about the other denominations is within their own faith. Right. And so I do think that that a lot of the divisions, uh, I I don't think it's a uh, I think it is a those divisions persist because, you know, over time, uh, people don't know anything else. (laughs) That's that's simply the way they grew up. I mean, I, I, you know, I'm one of the rare people that I mean, I left. My Catholic faith, and then returned. And um, what amazes me is how much I didn't know about Catholicism, even though I grew up that way.
1: I uh, so mean, when you when you came back, then you went in more seriously and learned. Yeah, oh.
2: yeah. I think I think that happens with a lot of people.
1: Um, huh.
2: So, I mean, one of the things I'm careful about, you know, as a as a Catholic uh, who's at I teach at a Baptist university, um, I've had students every once in a while. Not, not. I guess it's been a couple of years now, but I had a student uh, years ago who came to my office, and he was thinking he and his wife were thinking about becoming Catholic, and, and they, he was a, actually a Baptist minister. And at the, at the time, I was still not. I still had not returned to the Catholic Church, and I was careful though because I. It occurred to me, well, what if it turns out that the only kind of Christianity that he finds to be plausible is Catholicism. Supposing he's leaving the Baptist world because he just doesn't think the Baptist faith is plausible. Right. And so what if I talked him out of becoming Catholic, right? Have I now talked him out of like Christianity? <laughs> so I, you know, so I think there's something that I, I did never occurred to me until that moment that, that for some people, um, you know, if you're trying to sincerely convert them to your version of Christianity and, it turns out that you wind up actually planting seeds of doubt but they don't come to your faith they just don't believe in anything any mm-hmm. right so is is that really the, the right move i mean i know for example of people that grew up catholic who could never imagine let's say becoming an evangelical they just find that to be just absolutely crazy right but they and and they're not living a, a fully catholic life let's say they're lapsed catholics but they still identify as catholic Right. So in a way, you, you you know, to try to convince them to leave the Catholic Church to become an evangelical, you may convince them to just leave Catholicism, period. <laughs> right. So my point is that there's a lot more going on than just arguments. Okay.
1: You know, we don't have a ton of time, but what what's one more issue that you wrestle with, you know, maybe for quite a long time that you feel like you've got some additional insights into because you've studied it for so long?
2: Yeah, great question. You know, I I, it's maybe it's not so much uh not so much an academic issue, but I think it's just dealing with people that I you know, I've always thought when I was when I was younger, I'm now sixty two years old. I always thought, you know, once I hit my forties or fifties, I'll be in the world of adults and people will be sort of together and know exactly what they're doing and the thing is is that it's just not like that,
1: I thought <laughs> that so too, yeah.
2: you know yeah, i just I thought i
1: laugh at myself because i thought when i was you know a, a teenager like 16 17 oh man you know i'm soon i'm going to be in the adult world and you know adults are responsible and they're so serious and they run things right and, you know yeah. now when i now that i'm in late 40s i laugh but yeah
2: yeah so that's the one the one thing that really stands out is that is i I didn't realize how easy it was just ask for things, like so you know or or that the world of adults actually involves a lot more kind of intangible skills and just personal relationships that are are beyond the rules. I, I don't know if i'm I'm explaining it right, but. So I used to think like when I I look back to like uh I when I first entered the job market and got job offers, like I didn't I didn't know like that I that I could actually like negotiate things. <laughs> you know. I was just happy to get a job. Right. And that there's a lot and now I, I realize that there's so much more going on, you know, that you can persuade people and convince them by just being nice. Right. And, and, you know, things that, you know, that are, that uh, if I had to sort of tell the next generation of, of, and not that I always follow it, but I, it's something I, it's not an academic topic, but it's just, um... so the other thing that I've discovered, I think this could sort of tie into academics is I've actually become friends with people with whom I disagree. And that has been a real eye opener just to like reach out to people. And, uh, you know, like I've, ongoing back and forth with David Boonin at the University of Colorado uh, began probably in the late 90s. Uh, he and I have written books on abortion, and we disagree with each other on this strongly. And yet I've gotten to be really good friends with David. Um, he's invited me to give a talk at the University of Colorado. When I spent a year there eight years ago as a visiting professor, we went hiking together. Uh, I've contributed to two of his books. We he's been a, a a reference for me and I have he's so it's you know, and it's interesting to when you get to know people, even if you still wind up disagreeing, it, it's actually it, it actually has, it's made my writing better. Uh it, There's nothing technical about it, but it's just that that now when I write and I'm critical of David, I actually he's a real person. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so I, I you know little things like that i think you know that that have have really changed i mean look back to some of the things i wrote when i was younger it's, they're cringe inducing like oh my god i actually said that you know uh, even though i don't necessarily disbelieve it anymore but i could have been i could have been nicer i could have said it with a little bit more grace right so the things like that i think i think as i've gotten older I've, i realize you know, are, are are as important as having an airtight argument.
1: Okay. Well, that's excellent that you're open to uh, friendships with people that don't share your views. And that, that's, yeah, that's very refreshing. So, well, well, very good. Uh, Francis, we're, we're out of time, but um, you've got a lot of really interesting thoughts and many many publications. Where can someone start if they want to hear more from you? Like, where can they go and how should they start to learn more?
2: Yeah. So just go to my, my website, Francis com. That's, f r a n c i s b e c k w i t h dot com and there's uh you can get links to a lot of my articles uh, I have a page on SSRN which is the Social Science Research Network you can sort of Google SSRN and my name and you I there's there's about a dozen of PDFs of some of my published articles and a few papers that haven't been published
1: yeah. okay all right very good. Well, Francis, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you, Richard. If you
0: like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs.